Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream. It's number 160, isn't it? It is. It's number 160. Is that prime? Uh, that is not prime mm. for at least one reason. I asked our producer, our son Zach, this morning if it was if it was prime, and he said not for like a million reasons. And then we started trying to figure out exactly how many reasons there are that it's not prime. Yeah, it's 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 either one or a small handful, but uh, it's it's a handful. It's more than a handful. Yeah, as is he. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. You are Dr. Heather Hying, and uh, yes, we are. We are uh, we are the doctor. No, we are the dark horses in residence of this podcast. Indeed, we and, are. Uh, yeah. And today we're going to talk just a little bit about the moon. We're going to talk about um, categories, sex categories in things like sports and uh, awards and awards for things. And we're going to talk about how to not let what has happened over the last three years, or depending on the framing, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, happen again. And so we're going to finish with that. We might actually finish with dogs, um, but we're going to... I'm not finished with dogs. I no, love no, dogs. no, no. For That's, all their in, uncouthness. Indeed, actually, maybe we're going to lead with this. We're going to lead with dogs. Leading dogs. That's yeah. a natural. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to lead our, with dogs. Our, our people have been doing that for 30,000 years. Right, right, exactly. But first, um, some logistics for um, top of the hour. Uh, you can now follow Dark Horse on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We follow these live streams with live Q&A. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. We encourage you to uh, pick up our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, coming to many more languages soon. Um, and we have um, our store, has, is darkhorsestore.org, has great products, including Epic Tabby, Epic Tabby tote bag, um, I thought about putting the Epic Tabby in the tote bag because like some cats, he actually enjoys doing that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't have my, uh, yes, my act together it's enough. It's very hard to fold the sheets after you have laundered them because the cat likes to get in the sheets and be... And be rolled around and... Agitated. And, yeah, yes, he likes... Yes, you do, do, not, do not ever put your cat in the dryer, but if he likes to be agitated, consider putting him in your sheets. Yep. Yes. Um, we find find me at Natural Selections. Uh, I wrote this week uh, something I called Draw Blue. And as always, we want to thank you, our audience, and we'll spend a little bit of time um, exploring, uh, exploring who our audience is later today. But um, we are very grateful to you for subscribing, for sharing, for liking uh, when when you do, when you do like what you are hearing from us. And you can find us uh, on YouTube and Odyssey, our whole episodes and our clips. And of course, uh, the whole episodes also go out uh, to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that you listen to uh, audio. You had something to add? No. No, definitely Never. not. Never. It's not my way. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> is that right? <clears throat> and you can uh, uh, join uh, one or both of our patrons. Brett had a conversation with uh, a small group of his patrons this morning. You'll have another one tomorrow. We uh, we do a private Q and A um, for patrons of mine on my Patreon, and uh, at at um, and people on both of our patreons can join our Discord server, where there's just a remarkable number of really excellent people across all of the demographic markers that you might imagine uh, having interesting conversations in text, audio, video, uh, doing karaoke, doing all sorts of great stuff. So we encourage you to uh, join up with one of our patreons and find the Discord server there. And of course, we have 
sponsors. Top of the hour, uh, every every week, we have three sponsors who we have vetted carefully. And uh, if we're if we're reading scripts for sponsors, it means that we actually really do uh, vouch for vouch for these products. And there's lots that we uh, reject because they're just not right for us. I and believe it is still true. It is more than we have accepted. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. So without further ado, we've got three ads for right at the top of the hour here. House of Macadamias. Our first sponsor this week is House of Macadamias, which is nuts. Tree nuts, uh, which includes um, most of the nuts you can think of, pecans, walnuts, cashews, almonds, pistachios, and more, are delicious and nutritious. They are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates, uh, and they are increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you. Um, incidentally, just I was thinking about, you know, tree nut is a, is a weird category. It's not a... Um, biological category it's, not, it's, it's, it's more like a growth habit than it it's is it's more like a growth habit because you know peanuts yeah. are legumes uh they're not and they do not grow on trees but tree is a habit like tree is not a single evolutionary thing yeah right and so referring to something as a tree nut is uh is a little bit uh is a little bit of an odd category anyway you ever uh, kicked a tree i yeah i think so i probably have the habit Oh. oh, terrible. Okay. Sorry. Apologies to all. Are you, though? Are you sorry? A little. <laughs> House of Macadamias doesn't deserve this. Uh, <laughs> we don't know that. No, no. I th- We haven't I, visited. <laughs> we have not. Yeah, we haven't been invited over. No. Um, macadamias and tree nuts in general, um, see previous aside, are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates, and that is increasingly understood uh, by people who are thinking carefully about human health as opposed to looking at a food pyramid put out by people who didn't know what they were doing back in the 70s. Uh, High in fat, low in carbs, increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you. But each species of nut is different, of course, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, um, longer than many of the other nuts on that list I read, and are rare, representing only about 1% of nuts in the marketplace. And because they're both rare and um, and time-consuming to grow and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. But between the taste and the health benefits, they're worth it. They have fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them a perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. Again, with my footnotes here. I've got the, I got the reference if you guys want it. And how some... <laughs> what? The only podcast with footnotes in the ads. Yeah. No, I found some good sources. I like these nuts are great, but I also went deep into the like, and what is so special about macadamia nuts in general anyway? Went deep into the weeds looking for nuts. I did. I yep. did. And I found some. House of Macadamias has great ones. They are a company obsessed with making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate-dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts, included salted caramel and chocolate coconut. Our favorite product of theirs are the Simply Delicious Salted Macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. They are amazing. We love them and think that you will too. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias for all of your macadamic needs. Looking for something to nourish and energize you while in pursuit of the truth or the next summit? Go to www.houseofmacadamias, that's M-H-O-U-S-E-O-F-M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S.com and use code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on your first order. All right. 
Our second sponsor this week is Seed. Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome, and they make a probiotic called DSO-1 Daily Synbiotic, with an N, S-Y-N, biotic. I always prefer eating real food to taking pills. See previous ad for macadamia nuts. But I have to say, I really love this product. If you've tried probiotics before and they haven't worked, or you've wondered about them but haven't ventured in, this is a different kind of probiotic, and it's fantastic. There are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your health. Our sign-off here at Dark Horse is, it includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those words, of course. What is good food, for instance? Good food is real food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care in conditions as ancient as possible given the constraints of the 21st century. But even many people who eat such a diet are missing something due to things like soil depletion and uh, the ways that pesticides and herbicides travel, even if, uh, even if you're buying some, eating food that was grown without those things. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar. But not all probiotics are created equally. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotics, a broad-spectrum, true two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic. It contains 24 distinct probiotic strains, and they are in a two-in-one capsule, which protects the probiotics until they hit the colon, where they are most effective. If you've taken a probiotic before and not felt the difference, it's likely because the good bacteria weren't surviving your GI tract. Seed is designed differently with that two-in-one capsule, and that's part of why it works. Seed's Daily Symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health, and micronutrient synthesis. We have heard from several people who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. And I use it daily at this point. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 20% off your first month of seeds DS01 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse at checkout. All right. I am uh, a double dyslexic this morning with dirty glasses and, uh, you know, Symbol processing problem, so we'll see how this goes. Okay. Our final sponsor this week is Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative made with four medicinal mushrooms plus herbs and spices. With a seventh the caffeine of a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. It's delicious. If you like the routine of making a drinking cup of warmth in the morning, but you don't drink coffee or are trying to cut down, try Mudwater. It's February now. Did you know that it was February now? You probably did. Yeah. Uh, time for uh, you. Did you not? No, I knew. I knew. I've known that since the 2nd of February. Um, that sounds about right. Right. No, it does, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yep. Um, it's February now. Time for you to have realized what resolutions. Mm, this is not written correctly. Mm. It is time for you to have a reckoning with whatever resolutions you are still following. Um, and uh, if you have abandoned resolutions, well, there's always next year. I'm going to skip to the next sentence. If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day, a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try mud water. Do it's really great. Did I mention that it's February? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps, chaga and reishi, turmeric, and cinnamon. Mudwater also makes a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT, a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar, and lucuma, the fruit of an Andean tree used by the Inca in the subjugation of their neighbors. Um, I don't know if they use lacuma to subjugate their neighbors. No, no. They use it in the subjugation of. They used it while subjugating. 
It's not in. Yes. It, they, they used it near. You know, it's February now. <laughs> I, I was aware of that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that sweetener that Budwater makes is actually really good. And I, having spent some time in the Andes, as you have, right. uh, had never heard of Lakuma before. You went to the Andes and resisted the urge to subjugate anyone. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. Something. <laughs> or you can mix and match. That is the uh, creamer and the... Um, the sweetener and the chaga and rishi in February. They all go great together. All right. Um, Mix and match with actual cream from a cow. There you and go. And their lacuma sweetener or honey and their their creamer substitute if you don't do dairy. Any number of things. Yep. Can all be mixed and matched. <laughs> this is the worst ad ever. Yeah, but the thing is, the product is actually really, really good. It All is. of them are. The, both the, the mud water itself and the lacuma based sweetener and the, um, I can't remember, it's like MCT and coconut oil based uh, creamer. It's really good. Are you okay? No. <laughs> okay, you want me to finish? Yeah. We're <laughs> okay, where are we? Uh, February. <laughs> oh, wow, it's March already. <laughs> If you don't, mm, okay. Oh, you can mix and match. <laughs> Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from your favorite bees. If you don't have favorite bees, get some honey from your favorite beekeeper. Or use Mudwater's Lacuma and Coconut Palm Sugar Sweetener and skip the bees entirely. <laughs> Mudwater's Flamer... Flamer? <laughs> Not going well. No. <laughs> Great, man. <laughs> Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. You can drink it any time of year, including in February. It's also delicious. Blend it into a smoothie. Try it with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance, mint, cacao nibs, and add some of your favorite bees. Right. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, and it allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. That is not what's going on here instead. It nope. does not cause this sort of thing. This morning we actually both had coffee. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> that could be the problem. Visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use code darkhorsemud. That's dark, dark horse mud. I think you can spell all three of those words at checkout for 15% off. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash darkhorse. Use darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off in February. Or in January, if you can go backwards in time, in March, they may have a different offer, but uh, try it then, too. Yeah. All right. That's well, it. That's it. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> Goliath is having a terrible time getting rid of us, but the giggles might do it. Uh, that oh is one God. of those things. I fear it. <clears throat> yep. So, you were saying, February. Uh, that was you. Oh. Yeah. All right. That, yes, that I was... recall that. Okay. So... The full moon is imminent. Yes. Those of you who live in a place where you can see and um, and don't have to work that hard to see it will recognize it has been waxing now for you know, close to two weeks. Um, and maybe you didn't notice, you know, two weeks ago because uh, like I think we've I think we've said this before, but like the solstices and the equinoxes um, at the solstices, uh, the day length is relatively stable, even though there is a day at which, uh, you know, it is a day in the northern hemisphere in June 21st ish 
uh, where uh, the sun is above the horizon for the longest moment of the year and a day either side of it, it's shorter, but it, the, change, the change is slow. And the change is slow at the winter solstice as well, whereas it's really fast at the equinox. Like we're getting into the time of year now, um, closing, like getting to a point where the rate of change is happening faster and the, and the moon phases uh, feel very similar that at, at new and full, they kind of, they kind of stick at, you, there's no moon at all for some days. And there's a, a really very, very close to full moon for uh, four or five days. Um, so anyway, we're the official full moon is tomorrow, February 5th. Um, but it is so close to full now that it is, it is, it is there. And so that's yeah. interesting. That raises a point though, yeah. because you correct me if I've got this wrong, mm -hmm. but the rate at which the, what is the line at which the, the dawn or dusk line mm -hmm. on the moon must move at a perfectly regular or a near perfectly regular rate around the moon? It won't be perfectly regular because the orbit of the moon isn't perfectly circular, mm -hmm. but it ought to move at a consistent rate. But our vantage point here makes it look like it is moving slower as it approaches full or new, right? Oh boy. Um, well, but it's also, it's, but it, the, our view of it is not just about us and the moon. It's also about us. It's also about the sun relative, the sun's position relative. To oh, it. I think that's so, actually going to be a very tiny contributor here. I agree it is a contributor. Um, but, and actually that predicts it ought to be um, different in the spring and the fall. But I guess my point would be if you were to count um, the number of miles per Earth day that the um, position of the transition from light to dark on the moon moves, it should be about the same each day. But the point is, when you are looking edge on, that motion across a fixed number of miles on the surface of the moon looks like it is not very much change at all because well, you're looking at an angle. I'm not sure this is this is the explanation. Um, and here I am using um, data from others, which is to say a moon app. <laughs> uh, and the the moon app that that I like uh, shows the percentage of fullness of the moon each day. And where while it is at 100% tomorrow, it's at something like 99.7% today yep. and the day after it's at 100 percent, it's again above 99 percent right and you know it's only a 28 day cycle entirely so it's only a 14 day cycle to get from completely full to completely not full and it's it's incrementally uh a much tinier change near full and new near new right but that is from our perspective yeah and so i think actually it's going to be almost perfectly regular in it's if you were to look down on the moon for example then you would see it as a perfectly regular or an almost perfectly regular cycle around the moon. It is only around the moon. If you were looking down um, and you were looking at, uh, so you've got half the moon is lit and the degree to which that swings across the moon and thereby changes our perspective, that rate is constant, but it looks to us like it's not constant because a swing of that fixed amount when you're looking at, at the edge of the moon is not going very far from your perspective, from your two-dimensional perspective. It's the two-dimensional transition that, that causes that, I think. Maybe. I'm, I am not 
I'm not convinced of this because I, I'm having I I did not plan I did not model out in my head the the you know the three bodies, and also the different elliptical orbits of both the moon around the Earth, it being tidally locked. Um, also will change what we see like like it's not also like we're always seeing exactly You're the same, same view place. of it yeah right um and but that so tidally locked means that it's it's day around the earth is the same thing as its year it's it's actual day is the same thing as its year if we count the year as, as a one full rotation around the earth around yep. the earth um and i don't know the different ellipses and where they are relative to one another of of the Earth's orbit around the sun or the moon's orbit, orbit around the earth. So there's too many, there's too many variables here for me to be certain that um, that explanation is right. Uh, I think it, yeah, I don't know. Well, people seem to find every single thing we get wrong, plus a bunch of stuff that we didn't actually get wrong. So we are liable to get feedback that will tell us one way or the other. Well, I don't know, but I just, I'm not sure there's a one way or the other here. I think it's, I, even if what you said is true, it's not going to be the only thing that's, that's, uh, that, that is contributing to uh, how it is that we perceive. Well, I agree. There's a, there's a slight difference because uh, I can't quite do it, but um, yeah, sorry, I've disrupted your flow. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were just, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how you tell time on the moon. Which is actually um, kind of deep in the weeds, and I'm not. Maybe we just shouldn't do it at all now because I feel like this is this is this has gotten already way beyond. No, no, I want to know how to tell time. Well, but we don't know. That's that's the point. Is um, and I, I'm not. You know, let's let's. I think we should probably skip this. Um, maybe we can. Do we have? Do, are we ready to go into the story that you want to talk about? Okay. Um, well, I have something. If, let's, if you uh, let's do. Um, yeah, go for it. So um, an odd story that I don't want to focus on led me to something that I think we ought to talk a little bit about. Um, the odd story is somebody erroneously accused me of plagiarism uh, on the Internet. They tried to coin a hashtag, and then it turned out that I had, in fact, said the thing that they claimed I had copied from them before they ever said it. So not only did I not get it from them, but um, the order was reversed. The reason I mentioned so the, it... Uh, the, it was an unwitting plagiarist claiming that you had plagiarized them, or I don't were they, they unwitting? I think the, it was a canonical. The phrase was, uh, I had said that the Omicron virus had appeared to be frozen in time. And the person uh, concluded that I must have gotten that from them. They had another piece of evidence, which also doesn't establish this, but it turned out I had said it online before they had, before the point at which they pointed out. But it doesn't really matter. That's it's secondary to the, the important consideration here. The person in question, I don't have any reason to believe that they are a white nationalist or anything like this, but they do seem to have some followers of this nature, which I discovered because in interacting with their claim that I had engaged in plagiarism, these people showed up mm. and my being Jewish was important to them. Oh, good. So anyway, That's always fun. that was disturbing. Yes. But then the really disturbing thing happened. Something about my having interacted with those people online kicked me over into Nazi Twitter, something that I did not know existed. So some algorithm starts showing you Nazi tweets. Yeah. And I ain't talking about white nationalist stuff. I'm not talking about race realism, right? Those things are bad enough. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about actual Nazi Twitter. I'm talking about fawning 
videos of the Fuhrer making nice with children that have been put together with soaring, wistful music. Really? Didn't know it was on there. Shocked to discover it. Yeah. So anyway, on the one hand, uh, my point would be, oh, Nazi Twitter exists. Real Nazi Twitter. Real Holocaust-denying, Fuhrer-loving Twitter is a real thing. But the more important thing, I thought, even beyond that shocking discovery, was that it exists. And the way Twitter functions, I was completely unaware of it. Yeah. Wasn't surprised they were white nationalists, but I was surprised to see the depth of this. And so I do think it raises, there are several things that have worked this way, right? So Elon did a bunch of work to get rid of um, pedophile Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly know where that stands because pedophile Twitter isn't something I was aware of mm-hmm. until that uh, Fuhrer erupted. Fuhrer is a bad term in this discussion, but... It's spelled differently. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm rarely <laughs> thankful for such things, but in this case, I am. And I think really it's pronounced, you know, yeah, differently as well, so... Fuhrer versus Fuhrer, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, okay, I wasn't really... Fuhrer is yet a different word entirely. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, so there, there, the point is there are aspects of Twitter that would cause a normal person to absolutely shudder in horror. And these things, it's as if, you know, you are riding on the bus with, um, you know murderous thugs who you don't know are there and they're mm-hmm. you know making eye contact maybe they're smiling at you as they're you know plotting whatever it is they're plotting and i'm not making an argument here for what should be true i don't know what should be true but i am making an argument that it is vitally important that to the extent that um these uh communities arise and live in our midst it's kind of important that we know that they're there. This is true. Yep. This 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 is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, is that that we got? Yeah, I mean okay. th- that's. I, so um, we were going to talk about um, different award categories um, by sexes. Uh, if our producer is trying to get my attention, yes. Okay. Um, this is just not going well today. I don't know what we're trying to do. Um, should we talk about this or do we want to talk about what he's doing? Okay. Um, so this, and you can, unfortunately we're in Twitter again. Um, Zach, you can show this for a moment, my screen. Uh, this is actually from a few weeks ago. Uh, this is a, a tweet about a guardian article. I look forward to a time where award shows can be reflective of the society we live in, is a quote from the Guardian article. Uh, That's Sam Smith saying that at the Brits in 2021, wish granted, question mark, this year our sexist society is reflected so brilliantly that no women are nominated for best artist. Bravo, genderists. Okay, if I may have my screen back for a moment, Zach. the uh, actually no, I'll just I'll hold on to my screen. So the the article that the Guardian um, has written then has this quote: "The awards ceremony. This is I don't remember what it's called. It's not in this sentence. It's not in this paragraph. The awards ceremony run by the British Photographic Industry (BPI) did away with the best British male and best female awards in 2022, following criticism that the non-binary pop star Sam Smith would not be eligible for either prize despite their massive commercial success." 
and uh, apparently for uh, two years running now, um, one of the downstream effects of that has been that there have been no women among um, the finalists in a number of, of categories. And so th there's concern, obviously, that out of deference to the new fiction, which it is, of non-binary, which like, you know, go for it, abandon your gender norms, but you're still male or female. Um, so this new fiction of non-binary as a meaningful descriptor of identity um, repl is replacing male and female, which are biological realities, people. Um, women will once again get less recognition for their work. Right, um, as NBs, as the non-binary people uh, sometimes like to be called, begin to take spots that would have been um, spots uh, that women are getting. Uh, so I, I see this as a concern. I do, I do see uh, the 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 people who think that gender is more important than sex and are making up categories uh, and obliterating reality as very, very much so um, basically coming in and taking some of the many hard-won rights of women. That is absolutely true. But this prompted me to think more actually about categories of sex in the first place across in varied, various domains. So in sport, we have male and female category. And yes, obviously, actually, and there are still a lot of people fighting this fight, and you know, I'm in that fight sometimes, and somehow this isn't totally obvious to everyone, but if, really, unless you were born yesterday, this should be obvious, right? There is a reason there are different categories for men and women in sport. No amount of hormone disruption, blocking, enhancement of cross-sex hormone, surgery can erase elite male advantage if you went through puberty as a male, right? So that's that's one thing, at least in competitions of physical prowess um, and strength, right? So, and you know, that doesn't mean that you can't have um, co-ed sports. And I've I've written about and we've talked about, for instance, how much we both loved and we used to always played competitively uh, co-ed ultimate, ultimate frisbee. Uh, and of course, there's mixed doubles in tennis. You know, there are co-ed sports where this where where they can make sense, but it has to be an explicit expectation, right? So, okay, so sport, different categories for male and female in sport. Yes. Well, I want to pause you because the question is, I do, I am obviously a, uh, an advocate for the same thing, that such a category should exist. But the question is really, um, why do we do that? Okay, but I'm getting there. Oh, okay. okay. So different categories in sport, yes, male and female. Different categories in acting, actor and actress. I think so for different reasons, right? Uh, which is that male and female are fundamental realities of humanity and indeed of all vertebrates with a couple of weird little exceptions where it's still male and female are realities and just a few species have ditched the males and are all female now, but they're still female, right? Um, but for humans, male and female are realities and have has been for the hundreds of millions of years of our lineage that we've had, um, we've been reproducing sexually and maybe again, that's closer to 2 billion. And some roles, some acting roles may not be sexed. Uh, and those are some of the most interesting roles, honestly, right? Like, oh, that that story could be embodied by a man or embodied by a woman, but who is embodying some story, some character arc, some narrative arc, um, does then somewhat change you know, how that story plays out and how that character develops and what the risks are and the realities and the history and you know, all of these things, right? So, um, 
there are different ways of manifesting in the world, even though you can have very sort of male-like female approaches to the world and very female-like approaches to the world that are in the opposite sex bodies of which they are. Um, but in general, I would say that categories um, by sex for acting make sense. But how about sculptors? No, right? Like even, even though, even though you may have on average a different approach to sculpting based on your maleness or your femaleness. How about for screenwriters? Well, no, and we don't, right? We don't have different categories for male and female screenwriters or for sculptors. How about Nobel Prizes? No, right? So why music? Is music more like acting or is it more like screenwriting, right? And I think I can see an argument kind of um, for both. Um, if it's an historic artifact, then it's kind of affirmative action for women in music, right? If it's an historical artifact in which it's a recognition that uh, female musicians didn't really have an ability to get recognized, to get seen, and so we're going to create an award category uh, to help to help women get seen. Well, that's different from it was necessary that men and women had different categories for music awards because male and female music is different. And so that brings me to exactly what what you were you were going to jump the gun here on, uh, which is that there are at least two reasons, two distinct reasons to have categories by sex. Uh, and I think there's actually a third, um, but the two main ones that are that are detailed in the sort of list of like, you know, yes for sports, yes for acting, no for sculpting, no for Nobel Prizes, no for screenwriting, music is a questionable one. Um, one of the reasons to have different categories by sex is because men and women are different and their skills and talents manifest differently in the world. And so they're judged on different scales or variables. That's, and, you know, and yes, um, the different ways that men and female, that men and females, males and females, men and women manifest in the world is a, is a distribution rather than a binary, right? Like male and female are binary and the ways that, um, maleness and femaleness manifest in the world are, um, you know, more or less, you know, finite normal distributions in terms of, of, of how it is that, that we show up in the world. Um, but it's about physical and biological and frankly sort of population level statistical reality. And then the second reason to have categories is again, to like fix an historical wrong, to, uh, to, to recognize that women have been historically underrepresented or discriminated against and the categories serve to write historical uh, inequality and a if that's the case for a particular thing uh, as as women uh, reach parity or it's clear that in some particular field it's not going to happen for reasons having nothing to do with bias um, those categories should be disappeared uh, and they certainly shouldn't be clung to because it's always the way we've done it if they were about fixing an historic uh, wrong as opposed to about recognition of an underlying reality that isn't going to change, no matter how many people walk around saying that they're pansexual envies or whatever it is that they're claiming. So let's unpack a couple of those. Yeah. And I, I want to add an example that I'm frankly not even sure how it works, but uh, billiards, competitive billiards. Hmm. Is there okay. men's and women's billiards or do men and women compete on the same playing field in billiards. I do not know the answer to that. My guess would be same, same playing field, but I don't know. Yeah, that would be my guess too, but I'm not 100% sure That's of that. Exactly I'm, not even, I'm not even 60% sure of that. Uh, billiards competitions, male versus female, something like that. Um, and I also want to add a, a, an odd exception, 
maybe it's one of several, but American football, right? There is no women's American football, right? Um, there's men's and women's soccer, interestingly. I would guess rugby is like football and that there's no women's rugby. No, no. There's college-level women's rugby, I think. But anyway, it is interesting that... Well, and then you have uh, baseball and softball, right? Like women's baseball. I mean, certainly some women play baseball sometimes, yeah. but I don't think that there's professional women's baseball. Um, if you're playing that kind of a game as a woman, professionally, you're playing softball. And men also play softball, right? but women don't also play baseball, I think. Right. Now, I can't. I don't think I ever saw a league of their own, but am I right that women were playing baseball during uh, the war? I thought it was softball, but I don't remember. Well, in any case, there, there's an interesting landscape here. Why don't we have women's football? Uh, why, you know, why is the logic of soccer not the same logic as, as American football? Um, there is a question about whether or not... So if men play at a higher level in uh, sports that are physically... That physical prowess is the question... Mm -hmm. Um, then it's interesting that women's sports work. And I want to point out why I think they do. But if you... What do you mean what they work? What does work mean? If the top men are... If no woman can compete with the top men in a sport, like let's say tennis, mm -hmm. then the question is, why if people are going to see the top tennis players, does women's tennis make sense? And the answer... So you're talking about as a spectator sport, right. not as a sport. As a, as a sport, there's, I don't, there's oh, right, right, a right, question. Right, right. no, I, I am talking, You're talking about, about the spectation. Yes, I'm talking about why it makes sense yeah. that we have, you know, a men's and women's division at Wimbledon, for example. Um, and I think the expectation answer. Expectation is not a word, incidentally. What? That's the word I used, oh. expectation. Expectation. <laughs> I like it. Um, word. Well, you can be very persuasive. So, um, precisely. Yeah. The, so I guess my point would be one of the things about, you know, what is a sport? A sport is a, uh, a physical game in which the obstacles faced by the competing parties are the same, right? So they, you know, you can't play soccer on a slanted field. Um, or if you do, then the point is each side spends half. You can play soccer in a V-shaped field <laughs> in which the goals are at the end. <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, a little bit like Ulama, the, uh, the Central American ball game. But oh yeah, yeah, with the slanted sides. But anyway, yeah. put, put that aside for a second. The game neutralizes now extinct, um, like Aztec, I think, or Toltec, or something. I uh, believe it game. was actually passed down. The Olmec, the Toltec, the Aztecs all played Ulama, and Ulama still exists. It's yeah. just such a hard game that it's not. It when it's played now, though, it doesn't end in human sacrifice? Or? No, okay. not of either the winners or the losers, which I awesome. understand different cultures did it differently. Yeah. But uh, this is a game in which uh, there's a tiny little hoop, like a basketball hoop, but it's up on edge. And the ball, I think, can only be uh, passed around and launched with the hip. It's a very crazy game. Mm -hmm. but, um, but anyway, the point is, top women competing with each other is not inherently a much worse game than the top men pitted against each other because uh -huh. they're even with each other. And, and so anyway, the if point you're is interested in physical skill and prowess. If you're only interested in, you know, speed and force, yep. then uh, the, the women's sport is not going to give you as much of that as watching men's sport. 
Um, but in general, sport is not just about, um, you know, sheer, you know, speed and force, yep. right? It's about skill. And, and frankly, and this is, you know, as I have, as I have said before, back when we were playing a lot of ultimate, I played, um, I played on the University of Michigan women's team uh, for for a bit, and then we played a lot of summer summer league and you know captained co-ed teams and um, and also went to some you know day long tournaments and such and watched um, and so watched a lot of men's games, played in a certain number of women's games and played way 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 more uh, co-ed games and 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 captain co-ed teams and by far for me. Now, obviously, I never played on a men's men's game, but by far the most interesting of those was was the co-ed games, um, because men left to their own devices on the field were much more likely to just like huck it long. One guy runs down, you know, maybe he gets to lay out, and and you know, it's it's awesome for those two guys, and it's pretty great for the other, you know, depending if it's a full, you know, thing. Other five people, is it five, it's been a while, seven, yeah, right, seven people on team. Don't recall. Oh goodness, it's been that long. Yeah. Um, the other people on the team, um, but the points are short, and um, it's you know to you know to the victor go the spoils sort of thing. And um, by contrast, the women the women's only uh, games are much more likely to involve very short passes, much more cautious, less risky short passes. It takes forever to go down the field. Um, the person who does want to huck it long or run and run and you know dive into the end zone is much less likely to have the opportunity. And uh, and there's also more, much more of a focus, and this will come as a surprise to n- no one probably in our audience, even if you have no idea what Ultimate Frisbee is, uh, is that on women's only, in women's only games and on women's only teams, there's much more of a focus on like, let's make sure everyone gets to handle the disc. Like, and um, let's, let's make sure that everyone ends up getting to play. Like, actually, this is competition here. That's that's not supposed to be one of the main things. And so you have these, like, you know, these slightly too much, like, almost caricatures of maleness and femaleness in an all-male game of Ultimate and an all-female game of Ultimate. And because this is not supposed to be a contact sport, uh, and it really does work as a co-ed, in a co-ed game, and usually, you know, five, two, five men, two women, four men, three women, something like that, and you got to be, you know, matched up pretty well. Um, you actually reduce some of the silliness of the extreme all male and all female exigencies when you're playing together. And, right. And it's fantastic. But it is neutralized structurally as part of the game. Ultimate is a strange game because yeah. it actually builds into the structure of the game uh, inclusiveness and fairness. They're like the game actually has the rules written in that if somebody doesn't understand a rule play stops and the rules explain and all that. So anyway, the point is structurally in ultimate, right? You wouldn't pick teams and have an uneven number. Uh, you wouldn't have, uh, you know, the preponderance of, of women on one team. Uh, that would be an unfair game. There is a tendency to balance the number of women on each side. And there is a tendency for players, not necessarily by sex, but players to match up with a player of similar skill and speed so that one person is not fully shutting down the other person. So the point is the game. And if you don't have that, then you do a different kind of defense. You don't do a man on defense. You do a zone defense or something. Because if you don't really have roughly, you know, and this is more in a non, you know, strictly competitive situation, right? Uh, Like, okay, are we we out here? Are we doing pickup? 
to have fun or to brutalize the other team and the other team, we're going to swap it up in 15 minutes. And some of you people who I was just trying to brutalize are going to be on my team. Like, yes, I'm on a team right now and I want to win this point because that's fun. And that's kind of why I'm out here. But I'm also not interested in like, oh, let's line up with you who I know I can take and outrun. And then the point's going to be over really fast. Yeah. It's not interesting. Not interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, anyway, look, I think, I think the, the really interesting one here is the acting one. And your question is a great one about why the acting. Uh, Before we go back to acting, though, yeah. because I actually, um, you, you kind of predicted one of the other places I wanted to go. And maybe we'll end, end on acting. I actually found um, in the Seattle Times uh, a couple weeks ago, January 22nd, there's an article called, uh, headlined, Renowned Hawaii Surf Contest, The Eddie Plans Return After Seven Years. And I don't, I've, I don't surf. Um, I've, I've never watched a surfing contest. I don't know very much about it, despite having grown up in Los Angeles. Um, but one of the things that they say in here in this article, and I have failed to mark where it is, um, is that for the first time, I believe, um, ever, they're inviting women to compete. So this is, this is not going to be the Eddie, and maybe this has already happened at this point. I think this has been long enough. Um, uh, for the first time, it's not going to be just a, a male-only competition. And I thought, okay. So we have as the reasons that I had come up with for why there need to be categories by uh, under what conditions there should be categories by sex um, in those situations where men and women are just fundamentally different enough that um, combining, um, you know, com combining the sex categories would mean that women wouldn't get to play. Basically, um, there is the historical reason for like, oh, we're going to write some wrong. Um, and so make sure that, uh, you know, women get um, get get voice here, uh, and then there's um, this is about human versus nature, and so I you know I looked into how it is that surfing contests are judged, and it's a little it's a little figure skating y, right? So there's a lot like it's, it's judges and the top and the bottom scores are mostly dropped, and I'm sure it's different in different in in different competitions, but um, they're assessing on a number of things, like how many maneuvers they use and, and, you know, and how, you know, obviously if they, if they wipe out, that's, that's not good. Um, but there are measures of like, you know, apparent power, apparent strength, apparent fluidity on, on the wave, uh, which is going to give an advantage to, to male surfers. But if a competition is on a particular day at a particular break, and apologies, I'm probably not using exactly the right words here, but, you know, there will be different waves that happen at 10 a.m. versus 2 p.m., of course. But if it's your turn to go out, part of what you're being assessed on is like, which wave did you choose? And the waves are the waves. Uh, then it's, you know, it's human against nature which is um, re remarkable. And in this case, like, well, um, you know, men may have a little bit of an advantage, but really, like, what are you going to do? If you're going to make, if you're going to call surfing a sport, and this gets back to the question, like, what is a sport? If you're going to call surfing a sport, just like if you're going to call figure skating a sport, you're going to have to introduce some social means by which you're assessing. Whereas if it's, a, you know, it's Ulama in Mesoamerica or Ultimate Frisbee or American football or, you know, what everyone else calls football in the rest of the world, soccer, uh, where there are, you know, formal rules. It's, you know, there is, you know, there, there are 
there are dimensions and specificities around the court or, you know, or the field and the size or shape and density of the ball or the disc or whatever it is, uh, and how it is that you score and what the conditions are, then um, you can control everything. And it's, it's a little bit like human versus nature, but controlled. It's like we've domesticated yeah, you, war. It, it's, it's domesticated a, war at some level and been like, okay, now let's, now let's play at this. It's a laboratory sport in the sense that the laboratory yeah. purges all of the extraneous uh, influences as much as possible so that you can see the uh, effect. And a tennis court is similar to this. Yes. Whereas, you know, it's like the difference between um, uh, gymnastics in the Olympic sense and parkour, which makes use of exactly. things that are non-standard. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but I did want to... Uh, you wanted to go back to acting. Well, before that, I wanted to point out that there are two reasons, there are two male-female asymmetries that could result in the need for a female category in sport. Mm -hmm. One of them might have to do with the fact that males have an advantage because the sport uh, depends on strength and things like that. And my guess would be this is somewhat relevant to um, surfing. surfing, but mm -hmm. it, you know, there's a question about if you scaled the board down so that it was the same ratio of, of person to board, maybe it's not. On the other hand- yeah, I don't know. Um, on the other hand, to the extent that something is highly competitive, it might be that if you didn't have separate uh, male and female categories and you were looking at elite players, mm -hmm. that women would not get there because a much smaller pool of them would ever have tried the sport. And so the point is the tales of the distribution that show up would be much smaller. And so the number of people who would be able to do it at an elite level, having nothing inherent to do with their capacity, just having to do with the fact that the competitive modality would tend to census more widely amongst men. Well, as you know, I don't, I don't buy this line that is very common in the psychological and other literature that women aren't as competitive as men. I think it's, I think it's total crap. Yeah, but I'm not. But, but men and women compete differently. It manifests differently. I, 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 so I if, think you're reading something into my point that's not there because my point is in the athletic modality, you would have had fewer women attempt this. And so we'd find, we wouldn't find that many who had that elite capacity. So I agree with you. Yes, women are equally competitive and it's different, but the, the sporting modality leans in the direction of men. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would depend on depend on the sport. Um, but that's interesting. It's a different selection bias. It's a it's a selection bias about choice in advance. Uh, and this, you know, this is related to some of the some of the correctives that people are trying to put into place, not in sport, but in things like, you know, equity in, you know, software engineers, you know, the sex ratio of software engineers. Uh, Whereas once, you know, equity has been achieved and actually like flown past, and now you have more women in, say, medical school than men, apparently. I saw I saw I saw this recently. Um, no one no one is saying, oh, wait, mm, like maybe we should then maybe we should slow this down. If what we were seeking, if what we were seeking was equity, which is to say, uh, you know, and I don't I don't think we should be, but if what we were seeking was that, then it's supposed to match the sex ratio of the population. Then we got a problem. We do have a problem. We got, you know, we got too many of our institutions favoring um, sort of female style of learning and, and making their way through the world such that increasingly um, a lot of really, really great men are like, 
not for me. That's, this, is, this is not doing anything for my brain. I'm not going to be able to manifest myself here, so I'm going to go do something else. And, you know, that's, that's bad news, and we don't see, we don't see that very much being recognized. Yeah, we don't. It's arguable that it's correcting a, you know, a long-standing wrong, and that's why they don't respond. I think it's nonsense, but, uh, but it's possible. But let's go back to the acting question, because I think it's really where mm -hmm. the rubber meets the road here. Yeah. Um, in some sense, and you mentioned that there are characters that aren't sex-specific. I must say I'm struggling to think of one. Um, I've seen, I've seen plays put on in which a character that is traditionally male is played by a female or something. No, but that's, that's different. That's, that's obviously sexed enough that it's playing with <clears throat> gender expectations. Um, well, okay, so the, the first thing that came to my mind is not great because I've, I've actually never seen the movie, but uh, how about something like Forrest Gump? Uh, which character? Forrest Gump character. Isn't it inherently a guy? Why? Why does it have to be? I mean, it's it's oh, it's, a, it's well, a character who is um, as I like again. This is a weird example to be choosing because I haven't seen it. Um, but isn't it Tom Hanks playing someone um, maybe strongly autistic? Uh, and you know, autism does manifest differently typically in men and women. But um, you know, sort of going through the world without some of the editing um, that might keep keep this person from interacting with other people in the way that they might normally do. Uh, I think, I think there are definitely possibilities for people to, you know, just, just like children characters, you know, prepubescent children characters uh, are do are often not inherently sexed. Well, I think the four, I, I, I think I saw Forrest Gump many years ago, um, and I think it is a, a very, it is a sexed role in the sense that a lot of the uh, stuff that takes place in the movie is not interchangeable. But anyway, let, let's put that part aside. Let's just say um, there is something that I think we all intuitively understand and then some fraction of us are going to deny it, right? Because we're involved in a political uh, an ideological move. Mm -hmm. But we all understand that actually being male and being female even if you are a, uh, a female who has many male gender attributes, still the roles are so different mm -hmm. that the question, the reason that we would have different categories with acting awards, for example, is that there's a question, it's not a question of how good an actor you are, it's a question of how well you acted a particular role. And because at the very least it is true that we are struggling to find examples where a role isn't explicitly sexed, um, the point is the best actress on earth or the best actress in a movie role in the last year is a different question than the best male actor because inherent to virtually any role are things that, uh, you know, my guess is the best actress on earth um, will portray a wide range of female characters um, wonderfully and struggle to plausibly uh, portray most male characters, right? Because the point is it, the, the thing, the court is different in some sense. Yeah, although this then feels like it's skirting close to the, I believe, nonsensical argument that if you aren't the thing, you can't play the thing. 
Oh, no, right? no. And so, you know, we certainly see this over in like trans space, right? Like, oh, well, you know, we've got trans characters. You can't have a non-trans actor play a trans character. Well, no, that's what acting is. Right. Right. Um, oh, we have uh, a Native American character. There, It has to be a Native American person playing that role. Like, well, if what you're saying is to write an historical wrong of Native American underrepresentation in roles in Hollywood, then whenever you have a Native American character, you should have a Native American playing it. That is one argument. That, that is an argument that we can talk about. If the argument is, as it is generally um, stated, it is, it, you know, it is, I don't even, I don't even know how it's stated, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't go there. It's just like, right. you can't, you cannot, that, I mean, that's what it is. It's just, it's not even an argument. It's an authoritarian, like you cannot have uh, a role uh, of someone who's disabled played by a non-disabled actor, of someone who's trans played by a non-trans actor, someone who's Native American played by a non-Native American actor. And, you know, actually what acting is, is being able, is having such remarkable theory of mind that they really can inhabit someone else's being. And if hopefully it's written well enough, the character's written well enough that they really can go into that and, and be it. And, you know, the, the example that everyone knows of like in Shakespeare's time, women weren't on the stage. And yep. so men played both the male and the female actors. That was presumably not because, you know, it was it was more like, oh, it's the slight guy who's like, it's the it's the it's the guy with the slight physique who's going to play the woman as opposed to the one who sort of has more of a feminine nature. Uh, but I think there, I, and I'm not coming up with examples at the moment, but I think that there have been compelling renderings um, that make you think about what it means to be feminine, to be masculine, not to be male or female. Right. right? No, I, I am, of course, not making that argument. And I would say that the, um, the correction we can see because um, the idea that a woman can't write a male character compelling is compellingly is insane. Right. Right. Right, women do this all the time. Men write women characters, maybe less often, compellingly, but it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so, anyway, it's not—it's not a theory of mind issue. It's a question of how compellingly can you represent. And you know, mm -hmm. let's be honest. This is sort of the proof of what we've been saying. Yeah. You can identify somebody's sex very frequently by their gait. You know, right. at a hundred meters. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, you're wrong, but very, very rarely. And that's yeah, the way they're moving their arms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the voice, it's an octave off. Oh, interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is an interesting fact that it's an octave off. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, it makes sense because these roles, we can't help it. That's the thing is you, you, you can be a leftist activist as much as you want, but we cannot help but categorize this stuff because we're built to, because yeah. literally millions of years of evolution has driven us to pick this up as one of the first characteristics we identify because everything that follows from that is different depending on it. Yeah. And there are, there are good ways to play around with gender roles and gender norms and not deny reality. And in fact, actually, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but I, so I was in Portland for a few days this last week, as you know, uh, that's why I wasn't here. <laughs> Was that where well, you were? I thought it because because it wasn't February yet. <laughs> yes, right. Um, and while there, I saw this fantastic piece of live theater um, called something like and I uh, something like Ms. Holmes and Ms. Watson, 
or Miss, I don't remember, Ms. or Miss, Miss Holmes and Miss Watson. And it's a modern day reimagining of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as female characters in like 2021. And uh, I must say, uh, in advance of the play, when they started doing the land acknowledgements and the talk about all the people that we have to make sure to include in this, that, and the other, it's like, oh God, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, but the play itself was exquisite. It was it was really excellent, and especially, um, you know, more more than more than the writing, actually, more than the screenwriting. But the four actors involved, three of whom uh, were women, one of whom was was male, were extraordinary, and none of them were doing caricatures of one sex or the other. Uh, they weren't pretending that it's that it's nothing to have Sherlock Holmes now be. Um, Actually, I think I think they kept the name Sherlock. I think it's still Sherlock Holmes, um, but as a woman, and it just it worked brilliantly. And I thought, oh, here here it is. Like here here is a case where it can be done really really well. And no one is no one is being forced to say actually, um, yeah, those clothes that the emperor is wearing are really really nice. Like no one had to do that for the show. So let's. I, I'm. I confess I am not uh, able to quickly spot why music is different. It's clear that it is. It's different, clear that different it is. Which, different from which? Uh, the rule that I'm arguing is pretty much a rule. Yeah. Acting male and acting female are sufficiently different that, you know, Joan of Arc would not be well played by a man, right. even though she was a masculine woman, right? Right, right. Um, so anyway, there's something about in acting space, there appears to be a very significant based in ancient stuff reason for that sexual distinction. That sexual distinction existed in music and it has broken down in our lifetime, I think mm -hmm. much to our benefit. Mm -hmm. um, it is somehow a more flexible, uh, yep. and I've seen it break down in a couple ways, actually. There are a lot more women making compelling uh, rock and roll or some derivative of it, right? There's a lot of good bands that either include women, you know, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, for example, Metric, or, you know, are female in nature, the bands themselves. Um, and there's been a lot of exploring. They're pioneering in ways. They're not just sort of doing what the guys do. Yeah. Um, there's also... And it's not the music equivalent of, like, romance novels. Yeah, I mean, right, exists, exactly. Right, but no, like, no, you know, it's, pop exists on both in both sexes, and like that's not what you're talking about. They're pushing yeah. the same. They're pushing the edges of the same envelope. I would say um, yep. there is also a slight change in what was effectively a rule about sex and gender in music, where it was okay for a woman to sing a man's set of lyrics but a man couldn't really sing a woman's, mm. right? That has broken down. There's some famous examples of men singing a song that is clearly from a woman's perspective and it working very well, like uh, Jolene, yeah. right? The White Stripes version of Jolene mm -hmm. is one. And what's another? There's a, oh, the Lumineers. Um, there's a song, uh, it's actually, it's a fascinating song written. Um, I think the lead singer was in a taxi in Europe somewhere and, uh, the taxi driver had um he was driving a taxi had lost the you know lo love of her life her timing was bad and anyway she had kind of a tragic story and so he wrote it as a song and um anyway it's quite a good song but again it's a guy singing 
as if he were a woman and mm -hmm. it works you know yeah now i feel like um some of bonnie wright's bonnie Wright bonnie wright's music has been covered by uh male singers oh, that's right uh, i can't i can't think of particular examples but yeah but yes the, so that and that is that was a norm that ex that you know i th i think i never heard anyone say this but i think it was imagined that m male singers embodying female thoughts and voices was somehow emasculating yeah and so this is this is one of the wins this is one of the wins of feminism and of 20th century liberalism like you know what it doesn't need to be that way no and if, if it's not if that's not your thing that's cool um but this actually can free the creative mind um, to say, you know what, I've got a take on that. And I know, I understand that that is, is written, um, you know, by and from and of a female perspective, but I have something to add. And I'm not going to pretend that this is now the only way to do it. Right. You know, that, that's, that's not the way to go. Um, but hey, guess what? There's, a, there's another way to do this. Um, right. And it opens up. So two examples I've given uh, of men singing uh, lyrics written from a woman's perspective. They portray it from a woman's perspective. And then there's the cake rendition of uh, I Will Survive, which actually turns the song on its head. I'm not sure I know that. Um, oh, it's, it's wicked. It's really good. <laughs> um, but anyway, it takes on an entirely different character. Um, you know, you know, in the original version, it's sort of this woman who's um, been in, I don't know if it's a physically abusive relationship, but she's clearly been in a, an abusive relationship and she's standing up for herself. But, you know, abuse works differently depending upon who's meeting it out. If it's, you know, the mm. physically weaker sex, the abuse is of a very different nature. And so all of the lyrics to I Will Survive become something else. Anyway. It's, so they don't change the lyrics. Right. But they also don't pretend that they're not male singing it. Correct. And, uh, and it is, it is a very different, very different song at that point. And, you know, and of course the white stripes version of, uh, Dolly. of Dolly Parton's song is also quite different. And apparently there's a famous, uh, correspondence between the two where Dolly Parton is not compelled by, uh, Jack White's version. And Jack White makes the argument that actually, uh, he's, he's staring at the deeper meaning in the song. Um, well, this is, I mean, that, 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 is an argument that is unsexed, right? Like that—that that is a an old and abiding argument in literature. But I, th I mean, I think maybe in any kind of creative space, but specifically in music and in literature, around like, well, maybe not literature so much. Oh, well, playwrights, playwrights. Uh, I created the thing, and the way that you have manifested it is—you've it, it, missed my point. And to which the you know director and the producer and the you know, all of the, and the actors and, you know, everyone else involved in the production can say, you know what, you, you put this thing out into the world and you can have your understanding of what that is, but, uh, but, but you put it out into the world for, for us to now do with what, what we want. And with a play, it's, this is an obvious argument to be made, right? Cause like, well, the play doesn't have that much meaning. Like I, I happen to love theater enough that I have a, you know, I have a shelf of books of, of plays, but really reading a play is a very weak way in to, yeah. to what a playwright's mind was trying to accomplish. And, uh, and music even, even more so that if you, if you understand yourself to be, um, well, especially like a singer songwriter, right? Uh, you, you, 
if you're successful at all, probably some of your songs will get taken and adapted and transformed and understood differently. And uh, how amazing that you have the potential to uh, to say, you know what, you got, you got that wrong and have the other person say, you can say that, you can believe that, and you do believe that, but um, I think differently. Yeah, and then there's a third possibility, which is the um, teleportation of some sort of a canonical idea into a new realm. So, yeah. you know, we keep having to reinvent Plato's cave because Plato's cave is so so uh, archaic. Yeah. Um, but the matrix is very vivid to us Gen X types, right? Yeah, yeah, it has yeah. a deep a deep meaning. Uh, or um, West Side Story and its relationship to Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. um, but there are things which need to be updated and the the point is how much of the original you keep you know uh art of darkness and uh apocalypse, and apocalypse now, now mm -hmm. right there's very little that's maintained there's sort of a basic you know descent into a place beyond the metaphorical truth at the at the heart of heart of darkness is there but i mean it's even transformed you know heart of darkness is africa yep. and apocalypse now is vietnam yep right uh so uh the you know but you know but but the uh, the white man explorer who loses his mind and uh, wreaks chaos and havoc and destruction on a on a native population and needs to be stopped by you know more <laughs> more later white explorers is um, is the is the is one of the points of connection between those two renderings. Of yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I'm thinking of another version which I can't remember the name of the second movie, but uh, do you remember that there is a movie um, along the same plot as Dr. Strangelove actually released at approximately the same time? I don't. But it's a serious version. Really? Only the Kubrick version lasts in people's memory because, you know, it's so so remarkably different from anything else that had ever been made. Yeah. Um, but there was another version that had the same, uh, you know, nuclear... Uh, nuclear narrative that has run away and the bombs can't yeah. be recalled. And um, anyway, is it deadline? So I think, uh, I mean, this, this, this is maybe part of the point to sort of come full circle is that these questions of adaptation, um, you know, the, the, the particulars may be sexed and, you know, some, some occasionally a, an original female creator may feel that her work was not honored appropriately, was not taken seriously enough, and she may be right because she was female, yep. right? Uh, that will more rarely happen in but for original male creators, right? Um, but barring those incidents, which must exist, but um, I would argue will be a small fraction of um, the cases where there's disagreements about the quality and the mode of the adaptation, that it's about it's about creativity. And yes, creativity will maybe tend to manifest somewhat differently in male brains and hands and female brains and hands. Uh, but the question of, no, actually, I had something different in mind. You didn't get it. No, uh, what was in your work that you didn't know was there was this. And, you know, that's a that's a staggering thing to be told as a creator. Like, you, you think you found something that in, in what I did that I don't know was there and that you're seeing my work more clearly than I did? That you know, that's that's its own philosophical conundrum, uh, and has nothing to do with male versus female. 
it's funny, you know, I don't, I, I can imagine being affronted by such a thing, but in science, it's so, it's so much the it's regular phenomenon and it's actually a hallmark of a kind of success, right? You found an idea so deep, you don't see to the bottom of it, right? Which is actually one of the things I was trying to tell yeah. Richard Dawkins about memes that he doesn't get, mm -hmm. right? He, he sees right. them as trivial and parallel to genes. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand how much of the magic that is the unique status of humans as an evolutionary phenomenon is the result of the fact that the relationship between genes and memes isn't the one you've spotted, right? So, I mean, this, this is fantastic. Science and uh, more completely creative work, because science is very, very creative, of course, but um, are, are, are different in this regard. And just like, and, and maybe this is a decent segue to, um, you know, science and journalism are not the same thing. They don't follow the same rules. They don't follow the same expectations. And people in journalism who say, oh, follow the science and, you know, like, you know, who, who think that they know, even though they recognize that actually they're enumerate and don't know what they're talking about, uh, are making a tragic and profound error by imagining that science and journalism are the same thing, same thing science and the law totally different expectations, you know, in, in basically every regard. And so, yeah, as, as, you know, for me, as both a scientist and someone who is, who is, you know, an active creator in, you know, non-scientific creator space, uh, I can, I definitely feel the like, oh boy, if I've, if I've written a thing that is just explicitly creative, that is not nonfiction, um, the idea of it being grabbed by someone else and turned into, uh, you know, the, something in a different medium uh, would feel like, oh God, you know, can you, ah, like, what, what are you going to do to it? That thing was mine. Whereas with science, uh, you know, there are ideas, there are formulations that are yours because you came up with them, but they don't belong to you. They belong to the universe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they, you know, you have, it is discovery. It is discovery rather than creation. Mm -hmm. And that is a fundamental difference. And, you know, what journalism is doing, what journalism and law are entirely human constructs, as is, you know, the human creative process, whereas science is about discovery and the humans don't come first. Well, so let's draw the distinction. The stuff, the model that you happen onto is a feature of the universe, if your model is accurate. Yeah. The process by which you come by it may be just you. And frankly, you may not even know what it is because, you know, as, as we have pointed out multiple times, you can tell a student, oh, you make an observation about a pattern and then you come up with a hypothesis. Right. What you can't do is then explain, oh, here's how you're gonna come up with your hypothesis. Right? Well, and, and, the, it, and the coming up with the hypothesis is the is the core of the creative part of science. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's not even something that those of us who are good at it can explain how no. we do it, right? No, because the, you can't, you can't, right. nor can the sculptor looking at the stone uh, describe to a, a, a mentee, like, this is, this is what you're going to do to find the inspiration in the stone. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are bits and pieces and, you know, and you could practice and you can watch the the person learning to hypothesize or the person learning to sculpt uh, say, oh, I wouldn't, you know, see that there's that crack there. And if you do that, it's likely to cause this problem over here. Uh, but you can't, there is no recipe. Yeah. There is no recipe. The only thing I can do with hypothesis is show you how I come up with one. And then you can 
see if you can find your way to something that does the same job. Yeah, let's and, let's play. Let's, yeah. let's let's now go outside into the complexity, and and look around and wait for the questions to occur. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then and then and then play around with the ideas that show up and see like w- which of these are hypotheses. Yeah. Oh, some of them aren't hypotheses because they're un, you know they're they're untestable. And in fact, um, one of the pickles that we find ourselves in in the present is that because the science is no longer taking place in the university, right? Some simulation of science is taking place there, but it's obviously pretty feeble given Mm -hmm. what it's incapable of doing. Um, We are now doing this stuff in the open, which is kind of not the way it's supposed to be. And it means that, you know, in order to come up with a hypothesis, you have to entertain a lot of things that don't qualify. Right. Right. You have to, you have to free yourself enough that you're not constantly shouting at yourself that that's an irresponsible idea to traffic in, right? So, right, right. Um, so anyway, you play with these ideas, and then hopefully by the time you get around to voicing it, you've edited down to something that you can make some kind of defense of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's no defending the thought process that comes up with a, a viable hypothesis because it considered 40 that weren't viable. You have to try out everything possible. Yeah, and... Anybody who thinks that they're going to micromanage you and keep you away from bad ideas is also keeping you away from usable ideas because you can't get to a hypothesis without that license. And they've demonstrated that they don't do science and they don't know what science is. Yeah. They, yeah. It's, that's about power or at least at best it's about confusion about mm-hmm. a process that they're not able to do. Yeah. Power, confusion, censorship, one or all of those. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of which... Mm. Uh, why don't don't you take over? I've got some things to add, but, uh. Sure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about something that, uh, I actually encountered two different versions of it in the last week and a couple of days, but I want to explain why this is worth doing at all. Um, because I think it could easily be misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about an, um, an interview or a discussion that took place on, Barry Weiss's podcast, Honestly, with a woman named Helen Lewis. And the problem is that sh- that the two of them uh, specifically take me to task, and we will come back to the meaning of that. But I'm not interested in talking about this because they take me to task, though it does mean that I am expert on some of the things they say and I am in a position to comment on the veracity or lack thereof of those things. But... Here's what I'm concerned about. And I think we've talked about this at least once before. At the moment, you have a scientific establishment that has, to put it gently, completely fumbled the ball on COVID. And having fumbled the ball, it has put a lot of people in a very compromised position, people who aren't professionally involved in science, and some of them aren't don't really have a deep relationship with science at all. They trusted people who be trustworthy and it turned out those people are terrible at what they represent themselves at being excellent at you and i are in an interesting predicament because we have a large number of places where we challenged the official narrative and now it turns out that we were correct now as i said last week and i've said many times before we did not start out correct What happened was we started with educated guesses, hypotheses, and got more and more correct over time as we built up a model. How do you do that? 
by monitoring how predictive it is of phenomena in the real world. So your model gets better and better. It gets more and more predictive. Maybe it assumes less and less, right? That's the process we went through. The problem is that creates a challenge to all sorts of powerful forces going forward. Because if you and I actually succeeded in doing that, right, in outthinking the experts, not by using anything fancy, without their advantages, without any inside information, without the ability to commission experiments, or any of the things you might do in order to really be at the cutting edge. If we were able to do it just by talking it out, then something is really wrong. That should not be possible, right? Fine to outthink a certain number of departments, a field every now and again, but it shouldn't be possible to just beat them across the board. Mm. To the extent that it is possible, Yes, it's nice that you and I have those capabilities. Yes, we studied a topic which puts us in a good position to do it because it has a generalist toolkit that comes along, because evolution is relevant to many of the sub-questions that are involved in this. Um, but it is also evidence that something is desperately wrong with the institutional world, right? So my claim is the institutional world has to find a an excuse to... Um, discount what our viewers and listeners know happened on Dark Horse. Mm -hmm. It has to find that. Now, if it just had to find that and it was alone in the universe, fine, it would have a hard time. But it actually has a corresponding group of people, a large audience of people who were taken in by the CDC, by the New York Times, by all of the official outlets that were supposed to be doing the work of curating the information, seeking new data, right? All of the things that were supposed to work to tell you what to think about COVID, right? The failure of that thing resulted in a lot of people whose worst error was just simply to trust that the experts probably knew what the hell they were talking about, right? Those people got burned. Now, some of them got injured, right? Some of them just got humiliated and hopefully they haven't been injured. But the point is you've got a large audience of people who got suckered by something and are now trying to figure out how to go back to living a normal life. And you've got a whole bunch of people who screwed up, who don't want to be displaced over the fact that it is now evident that they do not know what they are doing. And those two things are now searching for a narrative in the middle. And that narrative in the middle is, is kind of a negotiation, right? The powerful people don't really want to be vindicated. They can't be. They got it wrong. What they want is to be slapped on the wrist in a way that does not threaten their position of power. Mm -hmm. And the people who got suckered would like to be relieved of that sense of, A, oh, there are no experts? That's a problem. How am I to live? Am I just going to wake up panicked every morning? Right? They would like to be relieved of that. They would like not to feel um, so much like suckers. They would like to have somebody put into words the mechanism by which they followed what should have been true and reliable instincts and ended up in danger, right? And so my claim is that there is now a struggle happening where um, influencers, some of them humiliated, are now seeking to, to provide a salve for that sense of discomfort. Mm. And the powerful who do not want to be displaced over their failure are interested in the same thing. And the confluence of those two things is a very powerful draw that is going to um, pull people in if we're not careful. Now, is it petty to be focused on the fact that this 
viewpoint that they are erecting is nonsense? No. In fact, the future depends on us not falling into this trap. And I will say, at the beginning of COVID, what I said, at least to those close to me, was that this was likely the best opportunity that we were ever going to get in our lifetime to reveal what was taking place in the system. The dysfunction that you see inside of a university, right? Mm -hmm. The failure of journalism to find obvious stories and to report them. These things are our system coming apart. Our very lives depend on it, as we are now learning with the uh, various failures of supply chains and you know scarcity of various kinds of foods. Our very life actually depends on a system most of us do not understand, and that system is showing every sign of coming apart. So my sense is we either take what we just learned from the failures of COVID and use it to motivate us to figure out how to repair the system well enough that we can depend on it, or we are going to not only suffer the equivalent of COVID again in some new context, maybe having nothing to do with a pathogen, maybe it will be a different pathogen, who knows, but that same collapse, the same inability of the experts to figure out which way is up, that thing is putting us in danger and it will continue to do so. So we have to get in the way and block that middle ground scramble for that narrative of comfort that makes people more comfortable now and puts them in jeopardy in the near future. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, as you would predict from what you just described, that middle ground scramble seems to be made up almost entirely, if not entirely, of people who are very educated, who um, have viewed themselves as heterodox on something in the past, and who um, reveal from things that they're saying that either they can't or have stopped being willing to engage in logical arguments. And, um, and if you are not, if, if you are going to take a, everything is socially constructed view of the world, you, you can't also claim to be on the right side of history. And so I was thinking about this in the context of, um, for a variety of reasons, some of which I don't know, but some of which is that I was in Portland and so ran into more people this, this last week. Um, we, we've been hearing from, um, a number of people who are appreciative of what we're doing. And I was just thinking about, you know, of the people I know, like, what, who are these people in the world? What, what are they doing? And this is by no means a, a complete representation, but uh, we have farmers and gardeners, artists and artisans and makers, pilots and teachers, healthcare professionals and people in the military, people focused on nature and actual sustainability and conservation, not the thing that's passing for sustainability and conservation in so many and in so many circles now, people who don't actually like to go outside, but like to claim to be all about nature and such, um, people who don't like discomfort. We've got people who work in food co-ops, uh, who understand stuff about, you know, actual actual food security, who make ferments and grow garlic and construct herbal concoctions and get raw dairy from people who, who produce it and uh, get it to the people who think that they need it or want it for, for their own, for their own health. Um, Musicians who speak truth through their lyrics and their notes. Printmakers who meld the wisdom of the past with amazing images. There's more. Those, every single word that I just used there re represents uh, one or more actual people whom we've heard from in the last uh, week or two. And 
every single one of them is doing something real in the world with a real manifestation in the physical world. Not that, very social. It's not entirely social. And I think that is going to be the, you know, the predictive thing here. Like, were you paying attention to something that they could not lie to you about early on or throughout this pandemic at all? such that at the point that what you knew to be true because you experienced it with your own senses and your own body, at the point that they made some claim that was opposite, you went, mm, no. Not because you went into it needing to disagree, not because you went into it needing to agree, not because you were faithful or cynical, not because you were a contrarian, but because you went, huh, that's not right. Hmm. Well, now I'm going to be on a little bit of an alert. Because that thing that I was assured was true isn't true. Oh, there's another one. And uh, oh boy. And you know, you quickly do go into this space like, oh wow, I did not know so many things <laughs> were not true that I was being told were true. But the assurances from the talking heads that all you have to do is follow along and, you know, I am the embodiment of science over here, and you know, you just have to do what this three-letter agency says over here. People who actually have real physical manifestations in the world because they're flying planes or growing garlic or making ferments or, you know, whatever it is, were much less likely, I think, it's a hypothesis, to be fooled by this across the board. And it's the people who are hyper-educated, who don't spend time in real physical space. Maybe, you know, maybe build a fence like, you know, learn to lay tile, like something, do something with physical manifestation in the world where you can see the results and not negotiate your way into convincing yourself that you were right all along. So it's interesting that you mention the, you know, people who do something real in the world yeah. and their ability to spot red flags, because it's interesting. I, uh, Barry had Helen Lewis on her podcast earlier, I think it was last Friday, she and Michael Schellenberger and Renee Duresta were on Sam Harris's podcast. And Barry says something in both cases, almost identically, hmm. which I believe is a reference, you know, so in some sense in, in Barry's own podcast, she tries to uninvent the IDW and she basically imagines it as her creation. You know, maybe she made her article created something that didn't really exist, wasn't wasn't for real in the first place, which is kind of a nonsense uh, idea. But in talking about the IDW, she lays out a trajectory where she says, you know, I think people who, you know, got something right and noticed that something wasn't being well stated by the official institutions, then fell down the rabbit hole and they went from, you know, the CDC was wrong on masks or whatever her example is, uh, to, and then her example is that Bill Gates is trying to inject you with a microchip, uh, in your brain because of the great reset. This angered me to hear it because yeah. a, I like think a prototypical straw man, it's a prototypical straw man because mm -hmm. it starts out right. And in fact, it doesn't even end entirely wrong. Is the Great Reset a problem? Yeah, I think it probably is. Is Bill Gates involved? Yeah, I don't exactly understand why. But, you know, there's something there. Does this have anything to do with microchips in the brain? No, that was 
you throwing something in there to toxify the well so that nobody would start to try to sort out what the relationship of these things is. So anyway, um, what I want to do... Most such maneuvers are unwitting. I'm not saying that that one was, but um, take pieces that might be plausible and add to them pieces that sound so absurd that by tying them together, you make... you, you, you. You cause people who haven't yet started to investigate such a thing be like, oh, there's too many things to do in the world. Not that one. Not that one. That's toxic. Well, I don't know if it's witting or unwitting, but this definitely feels strategic, which I do not, um, I do not begrudge Barry uh, a strategic nature. Obviously, strategy is important in order to get good things accomplished. Mm-hmm. But what she's accomplishing in this case um, I don't believe is legitimate. And the there are several features here that tell me something is off. So Barry and Helen are having this discussion, and they are talking about what the IDW is. And Barry describes the IDW. Um, and she basically names a number of the male participants who were in her article and says, and there were some females as well you are again disappeared. And that will become relevant when we get to the part where I come in for critique. I think your disappearance has a meaning. This is not the first time we've seen it. Sam does it, and Barry is now doing it. But let me... Let I, mean, me and I, I think there's one of three, three things going on there. Well, let me put my hypothesis on the table. You tell yeah. me if it's in your list. Yeah. The podcast that Barry does, where I'm claiming that she is involved in this middle ground scramble to create an explanation for how she and others missed the boat on COVID and uh, slap power on the wrist in a way that it will want, Mm -hmm. Um, is traffics in the uh, moniker gurus, Mm -hmm. right? Helen has taken up the idea of gurus in earnest, and I am effectively portrayed as one. I think... Look, the fact is, during COVID, as you and I were doing what we did, we played different roles. You know, I've always been um, more theoretical in my work. Mm -hmm. So the roles are asymmetrical. But there was no asymmetry in the level of contribution. In fact, one of the things that comes up in the little clip that I'm going to play is a contribution that you made the response to something Helen says is something that I got from you. So my point would be, if you're going to, I don't yet know what we're talking about. If you're going to level the allegation that, um, podcast listeners are falling for gurus, Mm -hmm. right? The point is, well, you and I don't look like a guru because a guru doesn't tend to look like two scientific people having a conversation about hypotheses, predictions, and tests right? Mm-hmm. That's not a guru move. That's a science move, yeah. right? And for two people to use a singular pronoun, that's just tricky. <laughs> right. So <laughs> indeed, in fact, I can't even figure out how you do it. But, right. um, but the point is, if they are going to dismiss us mm-hmm. as not having been right, because what we really did, and, you know, Barry's language is, you know, when she says you go from spotting that the CDC screwed up uh, masks mm-hmm. to thinking Bill Gates is trying to inject you with microchips. She describes it as falling down the rabbit hole. Yeah. It doesn't sound good. 
It's funny, though. A lot of the heterodox thinkers who are quite good use the metaphor rabbit hole for themselves, mm -hmm. right? The point is, this is not inherently a bad thing. And in fact, a rabbit hole isn't a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole is a rabbit warrant. And so in going down a rabbit hole, built into the metaphor is the idea that there will be blind alleys, right? Going down the rabbit hole is about sorting what is down. But also unexpected ways out. Yeah, multiple multiple ways in, right. So anyway, um, maybe we should play the clip and uh, then we can talk about what it's implicated. It's short. Um, so yeah, Zach. Are you ready? Yeah, we are ready. Gave them so much to kick against. And the more that people said, you know, these people are awful, you shouldn't listen to them, you shouldn't see them, you shouldn't, rather than rebutting them. I, the more power they got. Right. And I felt very strongly when I went into that Jordan Peterson interview, I, this is the one bit I do remember having a conversation with myself about, I will never say in that interview, I'm never going to say anything that you say is offensive. I'm going to say, well, if I think it's wrong and I'm going to make the argument about why it's wrong. And I think that's the thing is that there was the overused cudgel of offense and blasphemy rather than as you say, you can say to Brett Weinstein, well, look, there's very good evidence that the vaccines are safe and effective and that ivermectin was a promising treatment at one point, but we now have a good meta-analysis review that says, sorry, no, it's not. And it's not a big pharma conspiracy because it's a generic drug that's very cheap. Like, you know, this isn't like, it would have been, you know, lots of things that were, you know, like basic steroids. Dexamethasone, for example, was in exactly the same position ivermectin was, but that one turned out to work. And so people prescribed that one. Like, what's your mechanism where you, why you think this was suppressed? And that's the argument that you should be making, right? Rather than you must not question the wisdom of the elders. You have to partake in Okay, um, so Helen in this clip is portraying me as somebody who can't grok even basic information about COVID. And she says, you know, you can tell Brett Weinstein that there is, you know, evidence that the vaccines are safe and effective. The implication being, I simply am unaware of that evidence or worse, that the evidence exists and uh, that I refuse to accept it for some reason. Now, the fact is, there is an awful lot of evidence, there is mounting evidence that the vaccines are unsafe. It does not mean that nobody gets away with being injected, presumably most people do. But the idea that she is simply going to slip in there the assumption that the evidence tells us that these things are safe and effective is preposterous. Yep. Now, I will point out, Barry says nothing. Barry, a journalist who knows that there is mounting evidence of the hazard of these vaccines, has an obligation journalistically to challenge that. It is not simply true that they are safe and effective. And I believe that Barry actually has in her circle somebody who's been vaccine injured. So she knows better. Yep. Um, and she had an obligation to say so. What's more, she's talking about the IDW. And there are a number of people in the IDW or close to it who also know of vaccine injuries. So, you know, there's a vaccine injured person uh, in that realm. There's somebody with a spouse. The fact is, this is not a realm in which a journalist can bypass the fact that there is evidence around us of something more than safe and effective. But then worse, she goes on to say that... Um, you know, another thing that you can't seem to convey to me because apparently I'm too dumb to get it is that ivermectin seemed promising, but then she says, but we now have a 
compelling meta-analysis that tells us that that is not the case, really. I think Helen Lewis does not understand what the state of the evidence is on ivermectin. I think she's barely familiar with it and that her use of the term meta-analysis tells us that. I think she's not referring to a meta-analysis because if she is, she's either referring to the Cochrane meta-analysis, which said ivermectin didn't work, the Cochrane meta-analysis, which is compromised by the fact that they set inclusion criteria for which studies would be uh, represented and then violated their own criteria. And if she's not talking about that one, she's talking about the Andy Hill meta-analysis. The Andy Hill meta-analysis, which Andy Hill on videotape captured by Tess Lorry admits he changed the conclusion based on his funder's preference. Right. So and you have certainly not talking about the Lorry analysis, meta-analysis, because the, that one um, shows up in the opposite direction. Right. So yep. A, what she's done is just, if she is talking about the meta-analyses, she is either misrepresenting them or uh, remaining ignorant of the actual underlying problem with these things, or she doesn't mean meta-analysis all, and she's throwing that in there to sound technical. Well, and I think... And then she's referring to, uh, for example, the TOGETHER trial or the ACTIVE-6 trial, where we also have evidence of fraud, where, for example, the um, dosing carries this unexplained parameter where people above a certain BMI have their dose capped. And when you have a disease that afflicts people in proportion to the degree of their obesity, and you start underdosing people the fatter they are, of course you cause a problem. So the fact is, she is representing this as Brett Weinstein simply cannot understand the state of the evidence on ivermectin, when in fact, she doesn't apparently understand the state of the evidence herself. Well, and so I don't, I, I'm not that interested in talking about um, why I'm not present in many of these, uh, in many of these attempted takedowns of you. Um, but I said that I think that there's three different reasons. And I do think that those three different reasons are useful to consider um, across the board with regard to this. But just let's remember that the, the reason this is important is that this cannot happen again. And that this middle ground scramble as you have described it, in which the institutions that are flawed and failing are trying to keep some of their imprimatur of seriousness and are effectively signing on with, or the other pseudo-heterodox sort of talking heads are signing on with the idea of what the institutions have always been doing without understanding anything about what has actually happened. And so you're just going to get, it's like the, the, the metaphor that I was thinking of is like, it's, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the analysis, except for rearranging intellectuals. Like, it's just like, you've got, you're going to replace some of the old talking heads with some new talking heads, and they seemed heterodox at some point, but it turns out they're not courageous. These are not the courageous people. They're just following along like everyone else, looking for power. And no, not everything is about power, but these moves are. So, um, you know, why, why don't I show up when Sam Harris talks and Scott Adams and, you know, and Helen Lewis and Barry Weiss and such? I think it's one of three reasons, and it's some combination often. One, because people aren't actually paying attention. They've never heard you and me talk. They've, they've never heard you talk. Um, they haven't actually engaged the material. They've gotten their information from someone else. And that, I suspect, not knowing very much at all about the situation is what, for instance, Helen has done. She has, she's never 
heard anything here. And, you know, but it's also true that, you know, you went on with Robert Malone and Steve Kirsch, you went on with Pierre Corey, like you do the, the guest hosting. And so, you know, you're more out there, you're easier for the people who want to hate on, you know, what it is that we're doing and what you're doing to grab you and to take it. And so um, I think one of the big reasons is um, it's a reveal of actually, I never actually listened to or read anything that here they said. And so I'm going to just focus there. That's one. Second reason is that in some cases, um, not this particular, these these two women, presumably, although I don't know, is that it's actual cryptic misogyny and that they're accustomed to not paying attention to women being influential in a space um, that sounds, you know, that sounds like things that they can't understand. And therefore, probably this is not a thing that women would do. Uh, well, so that's obnoxious and terrible if it's true. And, you know, but I do think that that is um, that is part of the reason sometimes. And the third reason uh, I think that this happens, and I do think that this is part of what's going on with the um, podcast you're talking about now, is that it's strategic and it's more difficult to take down the two of us together. Because as you say, uh, we don't look like a guru, right? Uh, we look like two people with scientific backgrounds and yes, also credentials, but that's not the thing that matters here. We have decades both individually and even more decades between us, thinking carefully through scientific um, <clears throat> patterns and processes, making observations in the world, figuring out what hypotheses might explain them, how to test between, how to discriminate between those hypotheses, and how to move forward. That is what we do professionally, both of us. And yes, I'm more of an empiricist back when we were actually practicing scientists in the way that most people think of when they think of it, and you were more of a theorist. Uh, but, you know, I do theory, you do empiricism, like we, we both do both things. And it's just far easier to have it be, especially in this era, this like this, even the people who claim to be the most anti-woke, like, oh, let's go after the dude. He's, you know, it's, it's just, it's this guy who's just off, off the cuff. He's just not making any sense. You just can't talk to him. You can't talk to him about ivermectin. Really? Like, I'm, I'm guessing that this is what you were talking about when you said that one of the things that they talk about is something that I brought nope, to the table. I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Well, like, I remember, I remember having gotten up one early one Saturday back almost two years ago, probably maybe two years ago. And we were still living in Portland, and I don't remember how I went there, but I went down that rabbit warren of ivermectin and emergency use authorizations, and you came downstairs, and I looked at you, my jaw dropped, it's like, I think I have stumbled upon the most egregious example yet mm -hmm. of anything in the pandemic to date that, that I or we have talked about, and it was ivermectin. So that's the piece. Yeah. Um, it is specifically the emergency use authorization, because the last thing that Helen says in the clip that we played is that it doesn't even make sense that there would be uh, some sort of collusion to exclude ivermectin as a treatment for COVID because it's a generic drug and it's cheap. Okay, Helen, that's a non sequitur, right? The reason that people imagine that ivermectin was blocked was because it was a direct competitor to these vaccines, which were emergency use authorized. And emergency use authorization requires that there not be a viable treatment in order to be granted. Yeah, there being a direct there being a direct competitor uh, to the vaccine to to the vaccines to uh, prevent COVID precludes 
the EUA and therefore would have precluded uh, the vaccines going on the market when they did. Right. And then she says that um, this her point is proven because uh, she names a um, steroid that uh, is like used. Like something. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip it for the second. But the point is the fact that some other generic drug is being used, and yes, it is used for pulmonary uh compromise that comes along with COVID. Is it dextromethorphan? No, 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 no. It's not? Okay. Um, anyway, the, no, 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 the no, fact that she uses, the fact that she uses this example is uh, evidence that she doesn't understand what's going on because the point is ivermectin has two values. It does treat people with COVID effectively, assuming you treat them early with a sufficient dose. This has been demonstrated many times, and we can talk about why you think the evidence says that it doesn't, but that evidence is not persuasive. But the other thing it does is it is uh, a preventative of contracting COVID. And so the point is, these, you are comparing uh, apples to spaceships. They're, <laughs> they're not comparable. And, um, you know, I'm now thrown by Zach, who says that we didn't play as much of the clip as I as I uh, thought that we played. But nonetheless, there's like four or five sentences involved in her critique, and there's three or four critical errors in what she says. Now, my point is going to be, she's not actually trying to make an analytical point. She's trying to sound like she's making an analytical point. The actual payload of this entire exploration mm -hmm. is the word guru. The idea is, it, this is not going to compel anybody who actually pays attention to the podcast. What this is going to do is prevent other people from paying attention. That's its purpose, is to stigmatize us, to make us sound like, and, and this is a move that we see repeatedly now. The idea is, if that thing persuades you, that's because you're a sucker. And so the point is, anybody who hears us and thinks, oh, well, that's not what I thought it was. That actually sounds kind of compelling. That sounds like a scientific discussion. That sounds like a discussion I'd like to pay attention to. Ah, you're a sucker. You're falling for a guru. It's, you know, something is fitting a religion-shaped hole in your persona, mm -hmm. and that's why you're responding to it. So this is designed, it's like, you know, it's like skunk stink. It's supposed to make it difficult for people to get anywhere near this discussion, mm -hmm. because really the point is another discussion has to take place, and it's not up to the challenge. Yeah, well, I will. I will repeat that. Um, I mean, also not on my list of people we've been hearing from who are um, grateful for the conversations in which we um, try to logic through evidence out loud in front of the camera uh, are uh, many tradesmen. Right? We got roofers and and you know all all sorts of people who are again doing physical things in the world. Uh, I would hope that anyone who is so convinced that what uh, we're doing is based on a simple rubric of contrarianism or um, falling prey to some kind of something, 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 uh, I, I would propose first that you know, that's, you're recognizing a part of your own brain and that part is not necessarily universal and that if you get yourself in the habit of doing something physical in the world and seeing the manifestations of it, then you will um, be more 
able in the future to distinguish between arguments that are careful and logical and arguments which are entirely based in social conclusions. And I think most of what we're hearing, um, most of what you're talking about here, are arguments based entirely in the social sphere with sort of nodding, passing uh, referral to uh, sciencey things. But this is coming from people who aren't actually engaging any of the evidence. Yeah, um, that's quite right. I would say that they've, there are multiple ways that they are attempting to dismiss the conversation that now needs to take place, and people should be um, aware of all of them, right? You've mentioned contrarianism, right? To the extent that the system got really essentially everything wrong about COVID, from its origin to the best mechanism for treating it to the safety of the vaccines, all of these things, to the utility of vitamin D, all of these things it got wrong. And so if the system is in the practice of getting everything wrong, yes, a contrarian could get there without understanding anything, but that doesn't make people who understood contrarians by nature. Yeah, um, no, and I, and I think we talked about this last week, but I wrote, I wrote a piece in my subsect last year that I have been just been sending to people when they, you know, like, oh, you're just a contrarian. Like, no, that is the opposite of science. It is the opposite of science. It is the opposite because, because... of science. So is faith. Both of those things, simply having an idea in advance of I will or I will, I will accept or I will reject whatever the authority says, that's not scientific. Um, in addition, I also uh, hear, especially from, uh, from various quadrants, including, um, oh boy, damn, I've forgotten. Um, <clears throat> the thing that Barry says in this podcast is that, and actually Helen picks up on this and runs with it. The idea is that all of this is explainable by audience capture, right? A term that Helen correctly attributes to Eric and then misdefines, right? Audience capture would be the idea that you simply start saying the things that the audience wants to hear because it's lucrative, right? And I want to point out that, yes, that's a very sophisticated sounding uh, rationale for dismissing uh, a correct line of logic. But what is really obvious and should be obvious to anybody who pays attention to this podcast is that we are very frequently um, arriving at a position for which there is exactly no audience, right? Mm. Like, for example... Um, global warming is real, it's dangerous, but the models are crap, and the fields that study this are going to be compromised by the same perverse incentives that compromise COVID policy. The vaccines are obviously a hazard. So is COVID, right? The obvious thing, if you were going to follow some uh, path to some audience that wanted to hear something is to follow it to some audience that actually exists. Like COVID's not serious and the vaccines are dangerous. Um, right. But the point is time and time again, I remember being I... asked by a conservative friend, maybe a year into the pandemic. Why is it that you're skeptical of vaccines and yet you think COVID is a real problem? And I mean, that was really the phrasing and I'm, I'm not going to say who it was, and I thought, what, what do those two things have to do with one another? Those are two different, the, 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 those, are, those are really unrelated. And 
if you are coming to your conclusions because of who your team has voted for, yeah. you're not doing science. So, you know, let's put it this way. You can just simply look at the various ways that, um, and I don't, I wish this weren't personal. I wish we were talking about somebody else's podcast because it would be a lot easier uh, to do this. But you can't get to where we are by contrarianism by reflexive contrarianism, because the point is uh, the place that we have arrived is not otherwise on the map, right? Um, you can't get there through luck because the track record is too many uh, things that were unlikely but turned out um, to be true. And you can't get there by uh, falling down a rabbit hole either because the point is the pattern would peter out. So none of these things... Um, makes sense. It's not a coin flip. It's a scientific process. It is, uh, it shouldn't be true that it is possible to do this on a podcast and, um, you know, come up with uh, a superior model to whatever the CDC is playing with, but it is apparently possible. And that really is the discussion we should be having. It has nothing to do with gurus. And, um, you know, it's really, uh, it's quite disgusting for people who have not gotten COVID right to be challenging those who have gotten it right over time through a process which we have done in public so that other people will not pay attention, right? That is just, it's an unacceptable thing to do. And frankly, um, the amount of chutzpah involved in doing such a thing is pretty remarkable. I'm, I must say, I'm a bit horrified um, to be hearing this from both Sam uh, and Barry, both of them know better. And, um, I, I really, I hope they find their way back to sanity. Okay. We're going to, um, talk a little bit about dogs next time. We promised, promised this time, but, uh, I think maybe it's time for us to take our break for the week Yep. and come back with a Q and a shortly. Uh, for those of you who don't do the Q&A, we'll be back again same time next week. We will not be doing a Q&A next week, but we will be back with our regular live stream. You can ask questions for the Q&A at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, consider joining our Patreons, reading Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And uh, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.